confusion for you. All eyes on Graham Paul. Simunic, I'm certain, was yellow carded earlier on, and Graham Paul has forgotten about it. Oh, and Siemens been beaten. It's a goal. It's Ronaldinho. Oh, it's not a bad ball for Pelé on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And oh, what a great goal that was. From World Cup winner to international manager, taking the Republic of Ireland to never-before-seen heights, Jack Charlton is often referred to as Ireland's favourite Englishman. In 10 years, Charlton redefined Irish football, managing them at two World Cups with his charming, charismatic, forward-thinking approach to football that revitalised the nation. This is Jack Charlton's Ireland. For the very first time in the history soccer the Republic of Ireland team is involved in a penalty shootout I just sat there and I started to smoke again I hadn't smoked for about two years and there's a guy there smoking a fag and I said to him give it tab and he looked up and he went ah first one through the thing and give me the matches now and I lit a cig and I stood and watched the, the, the penalty shootout yes Ray Houghton and step forward. Yes! It's Andy Townsend against Silviulo. Ah, yes! Cascarino against this fella. Oh, yes! We can breathe again. Now, Romania's second substitute, Daniel Timofte, Dynamo Bucharest, to step forward. I couldn't believe it when David O'Leary went to take the penalty. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, no, come on. The nation holds its breath. Yes! Ireland are through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Welcome back to a fresh new episode of Got Got Need. My name is Chris Robinson and joining me on the line, as always, thrilled at the return of, um, you know, major hockey tournaments okay, <laughs> is Liam Baxter. Wait, that's why I've been sleepy all week. I've been up until 3am watching fucking NHL. <laughs> so this week has been a bit of a write-off for me. This is, this is, we're actually doing a day before record, before we leave. This is like the freshest, most mm. off-the-press, hottest off-the-press episode we've ever done. So Absolutely, my yeah. My week has been turned the pressure down by the NHL returning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, how, how are you? Are you good? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. I mean, um, I, I'm I'm deciding to limit my NHL intake this season because there's only so much, so many times one can be let down by a team wearing blue in a year. Yeah, um, and Portsmouth <laughs> do that enough for me. <laughs> yeah, you um, think I'd have let my lesson by now, but not quite. <laughs> uh, so, um, as, you know, welcome to another episode of Got Got Need. Today we're talking about Jack Charlton's Island. Um, as always, we are brought to you with the, the wonderful people at Zico Ball, um, the home of fresh and forward-thinking and uh, insightful football writing all over the web. Do go and check them out. Um, as always, across this season, we've been picking out articles that we've enjoyed and would like to highlight. So uh, today, I wanted to throw my uh, weight behind the piece about um, Mauricio Pochettino at PSG and whether or not he'll succeed, because... I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on that whole situation. You know, he's a good manager. He's proved himself. 
it's a controversial club, I suppose, in terms of its ownership <laughs> and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and but you know he's a former player, and you know people will just be interested to see what what he does and how we can manage all of those egos. And this article really digs into that. So yeah, do go and check that out. Yeah, he's got his first trophy already as well. So that's like that's <laughs> something he can already hold his hat his hat to after only like three or four weeks in the job. So that's not a bad start. Already better than Spurs. <laughs> Poor Spurs listeners. Um, yeah, so I've got. I picked out. Um, I picked out Lee Alves's piece on a player that I'd never heard of. It's Georgios Sideris, who is an Olympiakos great, and yeah, it's a story and a sort of little, a short sort of one thousand, two thousand word biography of someone that I'd never heard of, and mm. it was just enthralling. It was sort of a. It told the story of sort of growing up during a civil war. To he took up wrestling before kind of forging his path in football, and it was just a really fantastic like written piece about a a player that you know a, a Greek footballer that I'd never heard of so yeah anyone listening that's interested in sort of you know Greek football or or just interesting stories in football go and look, go and look at uh, go and read Lee Alves's piece on Georgios Sideris well there you go I mean that's the sort of uh, insight and you know, joys and great quality writing and pieces that you can read over on Zico Ball <laughs> so I think uh, yeah do go and check out both of those and all of the other bits and pieces that they've got on there but moving on to today's episode so today we are talking about Jack Charlton's Island and also the the documentary Finding Jack Charlton, which you know we've both watched. Um, how how do we intro this? Um, for, for me, it takes a a big personality and even bigger ideas to transform an entire country's football trajectory in a decade. Um, an Englishman going over to Ireland and you know winning hearts and minds and taking Ireland to the last eight of a World Cup on a shoestring budget, but creating all of these memories. I mean, it's it's fairy tale stuff. Yeah, it's it's the the Jack Charlton story in Ireland is such like it's such an incredible sort of snapshot period. It's what is it eight to ten years? I think eight years. I think it is all in mm. all his managerial reign, and it just he he basically takes them from the international wilderness where they'd never qualified for a, any major tournament before. And yeah, he takes them to the quarterfinals of, uh, you know, possibly the most romantic World Cup of all time. <laughs> so there's yeah. there's a lot rolled in here. And I think kind of why we chose this story was it's a chance for us to kind of try out a different episode format, I suppose, because we, we wanted to do yeah. Jack Charlton's Island for a while. We kind of wanted to do an Irish episode for a while. And as the Finding Jack Charlton documentary was kind of released at the tail end of last year, this is us kind of grasping the opportunity with both hands to to do something different. We've done like a live watch through game. We've done sort of a few little different kind of formats. And this is us doing a documentary episode, I suppose. So, mm. yeah, this is, you know, we can kind of take pleasure in diving into the backstory but we of this of this cult side. We, we've done that a few times with sort of Croatia in 98 and a few different mm. cult sides throughout the series. And this is just another one of those episodes where we take just a, a, an in-depth look at a side that people around the world of football love yeah and, and we've we've done a lot talking about individual players but not so much about particular managers and i mm-hmm. think yeah this is the the story of you know a man who was very ahead of his time in terms of his uh, approach and his tactics the way in which he managed individuals as well was really interesting and just fresh i think the whole thing you know certainly from watching the documentary you got this freshness of this very charismatic funny 
warm guy that had high demands but um you know there's a quote that andy townsend says in the documentary you know that that jack used to say which was um be a dictator but be a nice one (laughs) and and, and that's kind of it's little things like that 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 pique your interest and make you go you know i want to sort of dig a dig a bit more into it and you know obviously jack charlton passed away in in july of 2020 the documentary was was released and we've watched a couple of times in preparation for this um you know this is a period of time that stands as probably the the best or one of the best moments in irish football history it's the heyday isn't it sort Mm -hmm. of a a, qualifying for their first international tournament in for euro 88 Mm -hmm. up until sort of uh, world cup 94 that's like that's the heyday of irish football up to now really isn't it i suppose so Yeah, it's it's it was a really exciting and just a really interesting period to look into. Like I I don't know I don't know about you. I didn't know too much about Jack Tartan going into it. Like he's or I think because of because of Bobby's fame and mm-hmm. the fact that they both obviously won the '66 World Cup and Bobby Charlton went on to do such such great things with Manchester United as well, who are mm-hmm. one of the world's biggest clubs. I think Jack always seemed to fall in the shadow of Bobby, and so I didn't really know too much about him, but. I feel like I now know more about Jack Charlton than I do about Bobby. <laughs> so it's completely, yeah. this 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 episode is completely flipped on its head for me. So that, let's dig into, you know, the, the, the bio of, of, of Jack Charlton for those who, who don't know too much about him and, and maybe similar to what, what you've just been saying about how you know, everyone knows the story of Bobby, but maybe people don't know the story of Jack. So obviously uh, Jack Charlton uh, was the older brother of Bobby Charlton, who famously played for Manchester United. He um, did national service in the 1950s, as was compulsory then. Um, and his sort of playing career started at the age of 15. He had a trial with Leeds, um, and that's kind of where it started. So from a playing perspective, he, he was a one-club man. He played his entire career with Leeds United, which... Is is a you know rarity these days for for what's well, a rarity across the game really for anyone to spend their entire career with with one club, um, and he was actually called up to England just before his thirtieth birthday. So I mean, could you imagine someone these days getting called up to England for their very first cap at, at twenty nine? It's really late on, isn't it? That one, mm. like it's it's a really like I guess you call him a late bloomer. So in terms like like you say, he was sort of a one club man. He spent the entire the entire time at Leeds and he was part of that side that like dominated English football under Don Revy. Yeah. And he left, yeah. he left the season before Brian Clough's famous stint. And I think I read, uh, I read um, the damned United uh, over the summer. Mm. And so there's no sort of mention of Jackie Charlton in there, but that kind of period of Leeds where they completely dominate English football. And then they have such a tumultuous time under Brian Clough is also really interesting. If anyone's interested in that. <laughs> yeah. So with England he only actually played 35 times but I suppose he, he made them count you know he scored six goals in 35 appearances and won the World Cup in 1966 so uh, a, a fairly good return on investment there yeah definitely not I mean his his international career like it, it, for 35 career appearances to win a World Cup within that within that short space of time is <laughs> it's not it's not you know it's quite a condensed period of success isn't it really yeah. I think there's there's um I've I've pulled out a quote that he said about himself about his playing career. So he just said, "I wasn't very good at playing football, but I was very good at stopping other people playing football." So <laughs> I think he's very sort of down on his own kind of playing career. But he he knew what his strengths and what his weaknesses were, and he was just a 
a dominant centre back that was just able to, you know, just bully and hassle and harangue attackers, mm. and he he kind of knew how to to make sure that the opposition striker didn't get on the score sheet. Yeah, so from a managerial perspective, um, he, you know, before, you know, a lot of people know that he managed the Republic of Ireland, but he also did have a um, a club managerial career prior to that, that what, you know, with mixed successes. He managed Middlesbrough, Sheffield Wednesday and Newcastle United before getting the, the um, Republic of Ireland job. Um, you know, it's not like he, you know, you know, won great deals of things with those clubs, but you know, he, he cut cut his teeth with with a few sort of big big name clubs in yeah, in English football. You know, at the time, um, he seems before... to be quite loved as well. I think from mm. from the from the footage from the documentary of his time at Middlesbrough. Anyway, the the stands. I don't know whether this it continued through his managerial career or whatever. But from the footage that it showed in the documentary, he was the the, the stands at it, it wouldn't have been the Riverside back in those days, but on Teesside, they. Mm. They they sang his name it, like they continued to chant his name. So I feel like he was. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of get onto his period uh, uh, as manager of Ireland, but it looked mm. as though throughout his managerial career he was someone that you could just kind of fall in love with. I think yeah, the gravitas of being a World Cup winner from the northeast, um, managing your team. I mean, it has a certain. There is that romanticism of it, and there is that. Um, I don't know that that feeling of you know we we've got someone and something special here and and yeah. know, cl- clubs find that these days you know famous play you know i mean derby county might be feeling that right now they've literally in the last sort of day or so confirmed mm. wayne rooney as their permanent manager and uh, there, i imagine there'll be a fair fair number of, of derby county fans that are, are really feeling quite lucky that they've got you know someone as experienced as that who's won so much with so many clubs and played you know in America and in England and all this sort of stuff. I mean, there is that romanticism and that um, not necessarily expectation, but just sort of it's, it's hope, intrigue. isn't it? I suppose yeah, yeah, yeah. And intrigue. Because if you've got someone that was such a success on the football pitch early on in the managerial career, I guess this. I mean, Derby would have had it a few seasons ago. Frank Lampard as well. So they're mm. quite a good little case study. Um, but you will have a set of fans that can look at their manager, look at the. Ex- like the expanding trophy cabinet that they have in their in their home with the amount of stuff that they've won on the pitch and it just gives you that sense of hope that well if they can translate that to the dugout we might have you know an exploding trophy cabinet ourselves pretty soon it, it doesn't always work out like that but i think it's it's that sense of hope that surrounds an appointment like a jack charlton or you know a frank lampard or a wayne rooney yeah um so if let's move on to sort of the how Jack Charlton got the Republic of Ireland job. The documentary does quite a good job of sort of explaining the process and sort of how it happened. But there's a really really good quote that I got, a couple of good quotes actually from Jack Charlton in some of the um, the, the archive clips that were in there. So one of the the questions I suppose that he's asked and one of the quotes that he gives is he says. People say to me, was that the most memorable day of your life? So, you know, for when when he won the World Cup. And he said, um, joys in management are totally different to joys as a player. The joy for me was what we achieved in Ireland. Which says a lot about his relationship with England, well, the FA, um, not necessarily yeah. the country, but certainly the FA. And we'll mm. definitely go, go more into that <laughs> because it's not the greatest of relationships. But... He, and you also see from later in his life the 
the fact that he had a, a second home in Ireland and that he would go over there all the time and I saw a clip on YouTube last night of when he, I think Ireland were playing a game at the Aviva Stadium and, and Jack Charlton was brought out in 2015 as a, like a special guest and everyone mm-hmm. just rose to their feet. Everyone yeah. was so, you know, th- this is like royalty. So everyone just straight up to their feet and it was, you could see how much it meant to him as well. Yeah, I think that there's just a, an air of kind of thanks about mm. him. Like sort of thank, like, thank you for what you did for us. I mean... Mm actually like the how he got the job at Ireland like the, the the documentary just showed that he he did attempt to try and get the the England job beforehand it was sort of I think he asked for it twice did he yeah he applied for it and they didn't even get and yeah. his, his son says in the documentary they still have yet to respond to his you know application yeah which for a, for a World Cup winner that's uh, it well, I mean, it's rude at best. <laughs> like at, at the very least, it's rude and like disrespectful. So for him to then go on and he was obviously offered the the Irish job. I think the, the, the again the documentary says that he was kind of phoned three times and he put the phone down. The he, he said a couple of sentences like, "Oh yeah, well, I'll think about it." Put the phone down. Was rang again. Do you want the job? Yeah, yeah, I'll have a think about it. Put the phone down. Yeah. And then the the idea of actually, you know, of, of I, I I mean I had. I hadn't realised the extent of the kind of combustible circumstances in which he got the job in Ireland because at mm. the time, like this is kind of the is, is peak Thatcher government in England, and so yeah. the Irish, the England are public enemy number one. Really, the English are the public enemy number one in Ireland, and yeah. it's almost unthinkable that at that time that the FAI would give the job to an Englishman. It's like now um, uh, an, an Armenian an Armenian manager getting the job of the Azerbaijani team. Like it's that kind <laughs> yeah. of that kind yeah. of like civil not civil war but a kind of a warring factions between those yeah. two countries you just don't hire someone from the opposite side and yet mm. they did and it was a masterstroke yeah um the i mean the reaction in england irish players very much were seen as mercenaries because they were you know they were born in england wales scotland but had irish heritage for example and you you do get a sense in the documentary from the um the clips that, that irked jack charlton and there's a quote where he says uh, not in the documentary just another quote that i found he said every player that we brought into the squad considered himself irish had it not been for the economic circumstances which forced their parents or grandparents to emigrate they would have been born and reared in ireland should they now be victimized and denied their heritage because of the whims of journalists i think not yeah it makes complete sense like i think if you if you look at the kind of historical context and like Irish immigration out to places like the UK and Australia, America, Canada, mm. it was quite a well-trodden path, I suppose, for, for a myriad of reasons. Um, whether it's, I think, I, I, there's, yeah, it could have been all sorts of reasons that they that they, they moved to different countries, economic circumstances. I actually mm. watched a really harrowing film last night with, with my wife called The Nightingale, which is about an Irish immigrant uh, an Irish woman who immigrated to Australia in like the late 1800s I think it was and that was because of like um, prison labor so there's all sorts of different reasons that the Irish sort of moved abroad Hmm. and so of course there's going to be this sort of large pool of players with immigrant roots that Ireland can pull from like that's not so much the case with with countries like Wales and Scotland so at the time yeah of course it looks strange because you've got players from uh, with, with with Scouse accents, with Scottish accents, with all sorts of different accents from all over the UK playing for Ireland. But I think the, the phrase plastic paddy was banded around quite a lot. Mm. But if you take into account the historical context, like it all makes complete sense. 
But equally, this is a, a an early example of Jack Charlton being ahead of his time because if you were to sit there and say now, right, okay, you've got a Spanish grandmother so you can play for Spain or England and a young English lad goes, oh, well, actually, I'm going to declare myself for Spain, people mm-hmm. wouldn't bat an eyelid because it's like, yeah. oh, great, you're good enough, so cool, let's do it. It, it happens all the time. It happened with Declan Rice being convinced to um, declare himself for England instead of Ireland when he's eligible to play for both through, you know, grandparents and parents, etc. It's not a new thing now, but back then it was. It yeah. was. And, and what Jack Charlton looked to do was sit there and go, how can we make the Irish team as good as it possibly can be? So it was literally going, well, who's eligible? And they, yeah. he just picked the best from who was eligible. I mean, it's yeah. not, it's it's not rocket science. Sense. <laughs> no, exactly. I think if you if you look across sort of the national squads of of the continent of Africa, a lot of uh, a lot of players are eligible for France because of, and Belgium because of colonization. I think, mm. uh, or because of that kind of context. Anyway, I think go through the teams of like Senegal and Mali and stuff. A lot of the players will be sort of born, raised, and lived in france most yeah. of their life but yet they and, and they'll, they'll declare for for marley like wilfred zaha as well i think he he played once for england but now declared himself for ivory coast like it's a thing that happens every international window yeah. today but back then it was it was just a bit strange so yeah you're, you're right in saying he was definitely ahead of his time so the reaction in ireland was interesting um there's a quote in the documentary from paul mcgrath who said um i was disappointed to be honest after everything that's happened in this country why would we need an englishman of all people to manage our football team <laughs> yeah the bitterness in that as well it's like yeah like i say england is is definitely public enemy number one in ireland so yeah there's going to be a lot of of players in that squad that are livid <laughs> with an Englishman taking over I suppose well and, and the fans I mean there's clips yeah. of stadiums with flags hanging saying go home Union Jack they didn't want him there yeah but it's it, this is I think it should be commended for the FAI at that point because it's a side that's yeah. never well, we've already said they've, they've never qualified for a major international tournament they've they go completely off piste when employing a manager. They, they think completely outside the box here. And mm. I think you've got, I mean, England, Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland have all enjoyed sort of varying levels of success at some of the international tournaments, but the Republic have just lagged completely behind. So yeah. kudos to them for, for just thinking, look, okay, we'll just, we'll, we'll go, we'll go a completely different direction. Let's see what happens if we try something completely different and within, you know, a, a matter of months there at Euro 88. So, yeah. so it it worked wonders for them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just to touch on Euro eighty eight slightly. Yeah, we're not obviously. a Euro podcast. So. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> we'll we'll wash over it slightly. Uh, but you know, qualifying for that, you know, was obviously a, a gigantic leap forward and a massive deal to to the country, and really helped with you know that initial sort of burst of success helped jack charlton's reputation hugely and the support behind the team and all of that sort of stuff but then to to beat england at euro 88 as well was that sort of final thing of oh okay we're we're actually good yeah we we can play all right football and we can get results and i think it was that confidence boost that going into italia 90 it's sort of like they could go into it with a a bit less fear of the unknown yeah, there's the there's the whole like kind of underdog theme that runs through a lot of it, but I don't think Jack Charlton had that. He would he'd obviously won the world he'd won the World Cup in '66 for for England, and he just didn't have this kind of 
black cloud hanging over his head that mm. that maybe the rest of the Irish team did or like the Irish fans are like, oh, you know we're, we're not as good as this side we might not be able to get a win yeah. whereas Jack Charlton was like no no I mean I, I think we can beat anyone and the way that the, the type the style of football that they played lent itself to that perfectly and and also you've got like the you know it's like success breeds success so once you qualify for Euro 88 you've you've, you've got that monkey off your back of never qualifying for an international tournament and then when the qualifiers for 1990 roll around there's there's just less of a weight on your shoulders like okay we've done it once we can do it again mm. and they do they make it to their first world cup in like i say it couldn't have been a better one really it's literally the most romantic world cup of all time and yet and the irish get there for sure <laughs> so it's excellent yeah i think um just a final like note on euro 88 when we talk about jack's confidence in his his own team and his players he was asked after they qualified for euro 88 he's, there's a clip of him being asked by a journalist would you fancy an England Ireland final? And he said, it just straight away, straight off the, the top of his head, didn't even need to think about it. He just said, yeah, I'd play them anytime. I'd play them now, and I'd fancy <laughs> us. Yeah, like he's so confident, and I I love that. I love that. Um, no fear. Like put anyone in front of us. Don't care. Not bothered. We'll, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll give it a go. And anything can happen in a game of football, and, and anyone can beat anyone. I mean you can't write yourself off in, in any in any game in any circumstance i suppose that's what you would have needed as those that, that squad of players as well just a manager mm. to have your back like that and be like yeah i think we can beat anyone i've got confidence in this side so going into italia 90 um they they go into the confidence of uh, tournament excuse me they go into the tournament with with you know no fear full of confidence um obviously excited to be there beating england wasn't an unknown they'd done that there's a clip in the documentary where you've got i think it's the drummer from u2 talking about how to make sure that they could be there for ireland's first ever world cup people doing things like selling their houses and quitting their jobs so that they could go (laughs) over to italy for a month and all of this sort of stuff yeah Um, well, so it draws really... comparisons with the Peruvians of 2018, doesn't it? I think because they hadn't made it. Yeah. The, the Peruvians hadn't made it to a World Cup in ages, and so you just you, you hear these stories of people just yeah selling their houses, selling their cars in order to mm. order a, afford a plane ticket and a ticket to the game, or even just to be in the country. Because it's Absolutely, like yeah. seen as a once in a generation chance of seeing your country play at the World Cup. So you're going to do everything you possibly can to get there. Yeah, and and then the fans make such a such an atmosphere as well you know on the pitch off the pitch it's just this joy at being part of this you know global sort of football you know festival essentially um and there's a really good clip in the documentary where they talk about the irish flag being a symbol of irish resistance and being taken back by the people of us as like a sign of pride in in who they are and where they came from yeah and a lot of the Irish players say, well, Jack Charlton did that. And it, mm. it it made me think about what we talked about on last week's episode where we talked about West Germany um, winning mm-hmm. in the 1954 World Cup and this sense of national pride being reinst- you know, reinstated in the people and feeling comfortable to, to wave the flag again. And you have this here as well the irish flag is seen by you know certainly like english media as oh if they're waving that it's because they're you know going to be causing trouble and you know obviously as as you mentioned you know height of you know, thatcherism and the, the troubles and all of this sort of stuff yeah but for the irish people to be able to reclaim their own flag as a sign of pride mm-hmm. and 
to attribute that in, in any percentage back to the efforts of one person is pretty monumental. I, I loved that bit of the documentary. I thought it was excellent. The way that it was sort of shown as... Because I, th- I think they, they did... They managed to, to contrast it with... They showed a lot of fans in the stadium waving the Irish flag and then they'd cut to like a clip of of like a, 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 a balaclavered IRA member with a rifle holding the yeah. same flag. And it was just the, the contrast between the two images. Like it was, it was sort of those people reclaiming the flag you know because i think the way that i look at it these days is a lot of <laughs> this is a really horrible comparison but like a lot of like jingoistic chess beating brexit means brexit they mm. they use a lot of the the union jack flags and the english flags in twitter bios and stuff like that and and so when i look at it i always i see that flag and i think of that yeah. but then what you want is you want to be able to look at that and well, I think that's kind of what happened in the 2018 World Cup world around because England made it to the semi-finals. I was able to wave the England flag and not think about that. I could attribute it to something else. Yeah. And so that's what you want. You want to be able to take that flag that for a long period of time can mean something, could, can mean one sort of, whether you want to call it horrific or not, but I, I don't like the look of the flag at the moment yeah. because of the connotations. You move that to a sporting sense and, you know, actually I don't mind seeing a St. George's cross flutter in the wind because makes me think of Kieran Trippier's free kick that kind of thing like you know you just kind of you're able yeah. to take the yeah. you're able to take the flag and make it mean something else and I, I love the way the documentary did that I thought it was I thought it was brilliant there's 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 so much in the beginning sort of 45 minutes of the documentary that that I just love like I I, I learned that Jack Charlton was funny like <laughs> I had yeah. no idea about any of that there's when they first qualify for for Italian 90 someone asks him oh what would it mean to you to lead Ireland to the World Cup finals and he just turns around and says oh what you mean financially As, and, and like, <laughs> yeah. everyone just bursts into laughter like there's so much in the first sort of 30 45 minutes that that let you into the personality of Jack Chart and whether it's how he he was able to to help the Irish people reclaim that flag or just his kind of you know just his his bubbly and really quite witty personality there's a, there's a lot in there that they help you get to know the man yeah, I mean, you know, Jack Charlton is, um, well, the, the Charlton family are from the northeast of England, and he talks, there's clips, archive clips, where he talks about how he sees similarities between the Irish people and people from the northeast in terms of work ethic and values and priorities and everything. So I think one of the reasons why he even entertained taking this job is because he sees a bit of himself in them and a bit of them in him sort of thing you yeah. know, it's it, it, to, to go over there and feel like oh you know the, these are my people even though i'm not one of them um i think it played a big part um we'll, we'll touch briefly on you know some of the the, the games at, at italia 90 so they're drawn in in group f with uh, england egypt and the netherlands they get three draws so 1-1 v England, 0-0 versus Egypt and a 1-1 draw versus the Netherlands. Um, I don't know if there was anything in particular that you wanted I think, to, to touch on on any of those games. Yeah, I think the I mean the the 1-1 draw against England is obviously quite a, it's a it's a good point to start the group off with. Yeah. I think the key game in terms of not so much the football itself or the connotations on how it works out in the in the sort of the group standards or anything, but it's the nil nil draw against Egypt sort of sets up this long running feud with 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 Eamon Dumphy, journalist and pundit. Ah, uh, yeah. Hmm. Which it it runs through the rest of the documentary as well. I think that so the idea was that uh, Ireland draw one one with England in the group in the first group game, and the the second group game is is against Egypt, and that's the weakest side in the group. So Ireland are supposed to 
not steamroller them, but but get a win to sort of mm. s- secure their status in the in the knockout rounds. And they they play this dreadful game of football that ends in a nil nil draw. And afterwards, I think um, Eamon Dunphy just says on on live television he's analysing the game and just says he's ashamed of the performance. I think the clip, I think what the documentary sort of portrays is that the clip was kind of um, taken out of context or, or shown out of context to Jack Charlton. He just took complete umbrage with it and was just mad, just angry at Eamon Dunphy. But yeah. I think if we kind of touch on, I think it might be a good time to touch on the, the actual style of football that, <laughs> that Jack Charlton yeah. played because it's really, it's awful on the eyes, but very effective. <laughs> yeah. It's kind yeah. of, it's all about doing the basics, right? Isn't it? I think off the ball, it's kind of everyone's job is to, to hustle and harry the opposition and close them down and press and just be energetic and make sure that the opposition have a li- as little time as possible which is essentially what the pressing system is today but like yeah that's what Jurgen Klopp tries to do that's what Pep Guardiola tries to do it's to make sure the opposition it, it's win the ball back as quick as possible and limit the amount of creative opportunities that the opposition have but then on the ball it's very much about getting it forward to a big striker at the early, earliest opportunity. Whether Get it's a big Nile. <laughs> yeah, whether it's Nile Quinn or, or Tony Cascarino, like it's one of those two. It's launch the ball forward to them. They'll get the, they'll win the first header. And then as long as you win the second ball, you know, you can get a shot on goal. And I think there's a, there's a lot around, like the, the keeper wasn't allowed to roll the ball out to the centre-backs. He would have to knock it, you know, you'd knock it long to the halfway line or distribute it to the full-backs who would then do exactly the same job. They'd knock it forward to the to the halfway line it's just it, basically the whole play just essentially bypasses the midfield mm-hmm. and it was a really like watching any of the highlights it's really dull it's really drab and that's where Eamon Dunphy kind of takes it, it's like you should be attempting to play football against Egypt you should not be locking it long and drawing nil-nil with a side as poor as Egypt and that's where kind of this whole feud starts between him and Jack Charlton he I think Jack yeah. calls Eamon a bitter little man he later on in his career he said I made a mistake with Eamon Dunphy I should never have answered his questions I made him famous I think it's, it's <laughs> you know it's it's a long running thread and a long running feud between the two um, I'm not sure if it was ever healed to be honest because there's articles from 2020 that just they take a, a retroactive look over it and there seems to be no end points so I'm not sure yeah. if it was ever solved between the two but that's quite an interesting thread that runs throughout the documentary as well is that not everyone was happy with the way that Jack Charlton played football. I mean, you can play badly and win. You can mm. play well and not win, but you can't play badly and not win. That's not <laughs> that's not how it works. No one's going to go ha- yeah. go home happy with that. Yeah, I mean the it's interesting as well because you take a, a nil nil draw with Egypt and and some people like Eamon Dunphy were were unhappy, but then you get a one one draw with the Netherlands. Yeah. And that's seen as, you know, significant. I mean, mm. this is a really decent Netherlands side as well. The the goal that Rude Hullet scores to take the lead, I mean, it, it's like it's like he's dancing. It's just it's, <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. But but the equalising goal from from Niall Quinn, it, again, is really good instinctive play. I mean, you've got the Dutch keeper of, uh, Van Brukelen spilling a shot, and Niall Quinn's just there to smash it into the roof of the net, just mm. to po- poach on this mistake. And right you know, place, to, right time. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, to to get a one-one draw against the Dutch, finishing third in the group, to go through to the round of sixteen. I mean, you you there's clips of the Irish fans in this in the stadium is in complete delirium that they are 
you know that they progressed out of the group that they're the, 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 the you know the the journey continues that it carries on um and you know they draw romania in the round of 16 um probably won't surprise anyone but it, it's nil nil after extra time <laughs> it goes to penalties um and the, the the deciding penalty falls to david o'leary who is a player that jack charlton has a a fractured relationship with in the sense yeah. of he just doesn't he doesn't call him up the documentary goes into details around why and, and how all that happened and everything but he essentially refused to call him up for a, for a number of years and he always yeah, said he always questioned about it in the press as well yeah. He's, yeah and he gets really frustrated with it and but he always says you know if i need him i'll call him up mm. and yeah. and he does here and he's selected to to take this penalty and you know david o'leary is he talks in great depth around you know it's basically score this and we carry on miss it and we go home mm. it's this or nothing you know he scores it they go through to the quarterfinals and apparently the only thing that jack charlton says to him afterwards is i knew you wouldn't miss <laughs> the confidence in a man he just doesn't call up yeah there's there's a real sense of bitterness in, in david o'leary's voice as well throughout the that not i don't it's not I, i'm not sure how I don't know whether bitterness is the right word to describe it, but he's very um, somber talking about his international career mm. because he does say like, "Oh, I, sh- I should have had over a hundred caps," and yeah. there was just that there was just a time where yeah, he just he just wasn't picked for the Irish sides, and it's like football has this, or like a sport in general has this great sort of um, like fate element to it where the most important kick of the game comes down to this this sort of one player who's had this on-off relationship with the manager. Like, it, it couldn't have come down yeah. to anyone, you know, kind of more important. <laughs> couldn't have been anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, it's, it's something that the documentary does really... There's a... I couldn't find what the song was. I, I went looking for the score of the documentary and I couldn't find it anywhere. But there's a song that scores the... Un, like, just underneath this penalty shootout versus mm. Romania. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's like a just an Irish ballad with, you know, some nice string guitars underneath it. And I couldn't find it anywhere. But yeah, if, if anyone wants to watch the documentary, like the song, but pay attention to the song underneath the, mm. the Romania penalty shootout. So the, the quarterfinal, it's about as romantic as it gets. They're, they're coming up against Italy and Rome. Um, it's probably their best performance of the tournament so far um, in terms of, you know, the concentration, the defensive mm-hmm. solidity, all of this sort of stuff. But they lose out to a, a, a Toto Scalacci goal, of course, the Golden Boot winner. Yeah. Um, and you can hear if you want to sort of get more <laughs> go way detail, way back, go way back to episode one of Got Got Need, and where we talked about Italy's whole journey through that World Cup, and so you can you know hear about it from an Italian perspective. It's a shame that they lose, and it's a shame the way the goal comes about as well because it's a essentially yeah. a, a, a Paki Bonner mistake isn't it because he mm. kind of fumbles a shot from I think it's Man is it Mancini or Baggio one of the two someone mm. takes a a pot shot from like 25 yards Paki Bonner kind of spills it to the to the right hand side of the six yard box and then Scalacci just puts it into a an empty net and that's how the game ends um yeah it's a shame that it comes about because of a goalkeeping error but it was a good performance. I I remember watching that game months and months and months ago now, right at the start of lockdown <laughs> and uh, the first lockdown. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed watching that game. It was a it was a good performance from from both sides, really. Yeah, and there's a clip in the documentary of 
the Irish team sat around afterwards just, you know, with, with drinks and they're, they're singing songs and everything. And mm. you can tell that they're obviously sad that they've exited the World Cup, but like quietly proud of what they've achieved. Yeah. And then the documentary almost immediately cuts to the reception back home. It's like 500,000 people turning oh, out to welcome you, them back You'd home. think they'd won it. Yeah. <laughs> the scenes, you'd actually think that they'd won the whole thing. I can't remember if it's after they come back after this or after they come back after Euro 88, but there's a, there's a clip in the documentary where Jack Charlton's on stage saying, if this is the reception now, imagine if we ever win something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a hero's welcome, isn't it? It's like yeah. the people just pack the streets of Dublin. It's it's madness. Pandemonium. Yeah, and and it's just... I think when you see how the smiles on the players' faces and, and you know all of the the people in the streets hanging off of you know street signs and everything, packed in in their cars, waving the flag and you know yes they they might have been on the plane thinking oh you know we could have gone further or whatever but when you see what it meant I mean it's yeah. it's, it's really 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 incredible. Um, and, and it made you quite sad as well. I think I don't mm. know. Well, I don't know about you, but we we've not. I mean, I've not been able to attend a live football game in months. Weird that there's there's probably it doesn't look likely that's going to happen for another few months. And just yeah. watching the celebrations after the penalty shootout win just makes me really miss that feeling and like wonder when we'll get it back. I yeah. think the the idea originally for this podcast was to like record in batches in a studio together. Like, and we haven't been able to yeah. do that. Like, I really miss just it made me really miss watching live football with mates. Yeah, or like being around that kind of you know kind of had that raucous celebrations after a win. Yeah, I mean, I, I was saying this that when the uh, I think it was last weekend or the weekend before the FA Cup third round weekend, mm-hmm. watching Marine versus Tottenham. Oh yeah, and I said to to my girlfriend, I I don't really care what standard the game is. I just like the game. Yeah, I, I would happily because she said something like, "Oh, what if your house? What if we lived in a house that backed onto the Marine ground? You know, <laughs> like it is there." And I was like, "I'd love it." <laughs> you there, there with a big cardboard cut out of Jurgen Klopp in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, I'd be I'd be there buying a program every week. I'd be there joining in, cheering on. Because I mean, if you've got that sort of level of access to, I said, you know, I, I don't Champions League final or sixth tier. I don't care. It's still the same game essentially, yeah. and it's it's just enjoying the game. That's the that's the the main reason why people watch it it's not because of you know i don't watch portsmouth because i ex- ever expect them to win something they have <laughs> won stuff in the past but yeah. it's, it's it's a rarity and when it happens you enjoy it but you know mm. that it's not the standard it's why liverpool fans were ecstatic when they won the premier league because that, that just hasn't happened in 30 years for them yeah. and, you know you, you you never know what's going to happen you you know yeah qpr might have an average season but next season they might win the championship you don't know yeah, that's uh, yeah. The whole idea of just hope around football—that's what this kind of the, the beginning of this documentary, I suppose, is just about. Look, we've we've got someone in charge now that might help us do something. I think in terms of it, this this documentary really did hit home quite hard because of the watching the celebrations here and just knowing that we haven't been able to uh, we as in the collective, yeah. like every single football fan in the country, haven't been able to enjoy that kind of experience of going to uh, a game with friends or. You know, whether whether you go alone just to enjoy the football game or like no matter what level it is, like I attend football at championship level, at um, North uh, National League South level and even below, I think I, I've no idea what, I, I go to Froome Town fairly regularly and I've no idea yeah. what um, what league they're in. But it's just, 
uh, an excuse to get out of the house and with yeah. a friend buy a, a, a cup of tea and a Snickers at half time and just watch and, and chat shit for a bit and it's like <laughs> it's that kind of thing that you're just not able to do anymore and I had I had, yeah. had a conversation this morning um, with my wife about um, just about things happening during this lockdown so take Liverpool for an example they've not won the league in 30 years they finally win it in a time when their fans can't watch it happen if you yeah. Last night, I think it was the taking it to a wider sporting context. The the Buffalo Bills won a game in the NFL, which takes them to the something conference final. They're a team notorious for losing Super Bowls. They've lost. They've they've appeared in five, lost all of them. If they were to get to the Super Bowl and win it in a time where their fans can't be there in the stadium, that's mm. that's extremely bittersweet. Surely, like yeah. you can't watch your team win their first Super Bowl when they're notorious losers or. <laughs> You know, how difficult is that? Like, that must be a really difficult pill to swallow. So yeah. this kind of whole scene where you've just got th- like throngs of people lining the streets of Dublin, hugging and kissing and singing. And uh, when the fuck are we getting that back? <laughs> so it's, it's a question no one can answer, but it's just something that really hit home during this documentary. Like they looked like they were having a ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it makes it makes you wish you were there as well, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So. USA 94. So I want to touch a little bit on the qualification because when you see their qualification, you sit, sit there and go, um, that's tough, that's tough, and holy shit, how did they allow those two teams to be drawn together? Um, they're in a, uh, a group with Spain, Denmark, Lithuania, Latvia, Albania, and Northern Ireland. Um, so they, the qualification, you know, they finished second in that group overall um, and, and qualify for USA 94. They get draws with Spain and Denmark, which are obviously you know really big results and, and help them on that journey. And it's the Northern Ireland games that are yeah really quite fiery and fucking they, volatile. Yeah, <laughs> they touch on the documentary. Volatile. You see Nar Quinn talking about how that it was basically like a war zone. Mm. Um. And you see the the scenes from from Belfast and from um, you know well, both fixtures. You, you see sort of clips and about how how much tension there was around it. Um, it. It's it's really a snapshot of where those two parts of that landmass were at that time. Yeah. Um, must have been really difficult. It, it, it really it shows during the documentary how difficult it was for the team to go in because they had to avoid defeat, right? That was it. They needed yeah. a point and they got a 1-1. One, one, I think if I'm remembering it right, they got a 1-1 one, one draw. And for a team like the Republic to go into the, you know, to cross the border in the north and get that point in such volatile circumstances, that's, you know, must have been extremely difficult for them. And it shows but the, I think at the end they're obviously celebrating because they've just made it to a World Cup final mm. I think even celebrating in that stadium is brave <laughs> like yeah. in front of another side who who haven't made it like it's it's their their closest rivals I mean not just in a sporting sense and they get the point they need to qualify for a World Cup whilst the opposition aren't going to that summer tournament and mm. yeah it must have just been you know it's, like I say, it's extremely brave to actually celebrate on that pitch and, and enjoy that point. <laughs> so it's the it's Ireland's second ever World Cup appearance after Italia '90. They're drawn in Group E with Italy, Mexico, and Norway. Um, 
again a tough looking group um but you know jack charlton goes into it full of confidence and, and hope again and and obviously the nation is is full of hope and expectation too uh, the first game in the group is essentially a rematch versus italy mm. and, and ireland win it this time they they, they beat italy one nil and this is a really strong Italy side that an awful lot was expected them of, of them at um, USA 94. You know, you've got Baggio, well, both Baggios, Dino and Roberto, mm. um, Beppe Signori's in, in the team. It's it's a really, really strong Italy team. And this is, um, I'm going to give a shout out to the guys at Mundial. They have a podcast called Giant. They did a episode that's specifically about this game and specifically about Paul McGrath and mm-hmm. the performance that he puts in because it's probably the best performance defensive performance you will ever see from anyone in an Ireland shirt the crowd is cheering um, ooh ah Paul McGrath <laughs> and anytime <laughs> he does that. anything it's <laughs> deafening I mean this is a guy with essentially destroyed knees he's got one arm that doesn't work properly because of shoulder injuries and everything mm-hmm. and he's there blocking Roberto Baggio shots with his fucking face <laughs> like, he literally stops everything that Italy throw at them it is a monstrous performance yeah and absolute gladiator at the back <laughs> yeah and there's a bit um I think it's in the the, the, the Mundial podcast where there's um one of the other Irish players is talking about how this thing that happened on pitch that wasn't captured in any of the footage and everything, that Franco Baresi, at the end, final whistle goes, Franco Franco Baresi goes straight to Paul McGrath and swaps his shirt with him. Frank, the great <laughs> Franco Baresi, yeah. after everything that he's witnessed, he's like, I want that guy's shirt. He was insane. He oh, was that's like, excellent. Yeah, and it, it's that sort of level of, I don't know, um, validation of how good the mm. performance was that the, the only thing that was on Baresi's mind was I want that guy shirt yeah the the, the Paul McGrath kind of story that runs that runs through the documentary as well as well I guess like that podcast mm. as well is, is is a really interesting thread that runs through it because he's he has like the documentary goes into detail is he has a very tricky childhood and then he's the I mean he's the only black player playing for the Republic of Ireland in a time where that's not uh, the norm and he has troubles with alcohol, which are quite well known throughout the world of football. And Jack Charlton really, like, he he treats him with, I don't know, it's, the, the manager, like, the, the the way that he manages Paul McGrath is, is, is excellent to a t- like to a t really isn't it this sort of yeah. he, he puts him in when he need like when he he thinks he needs he puts an arm around him when he needs it he's he's quite strict with him when that when yeah when it, it, it needs to be, when he needs to be and yeah i think the the, the paul mcgrath there's, there's there's a bit at the end of the documentary towards oh, it's towards the end anyway and jack charles kind of watching things on his computer and there's we'll kind of talk a little bit more about about the documentary at the very end of it and sort of the the undertones to it but there's he sees footage of Paul McGrath and because of the state that Jack Charlton is in when he's watching this footage, he remembers his name and the smile that, that comes onto Jack Charlton's face when he's able to remember Paul McGrath's name is like, it's both like infectious and extremely heartbreaking at the same time. So the whole, the whole Paul McGrath thread through this, through this sort of hour and a half documentary is, yeah, it's, um, I I just, I really enjoyed it. He's like a, a father to him. 
Yeah. There's, there's no other way of describing yeah. it. It's not like, Har- you know, they always said about Harry Redknapp being a good man manager, putting his arm around someone. Mm. This was more than that. This was getting him, you know, interventions in his public life and helping him get the, the drinking under a level of control that it yeah, was manageable rather than saying you you just need to sober up or whatever it mm-hmm. was saying right how can we manage this how can we make it so that it's not as bad i'm not going to try and fix it all but mm-hmm. i'm going to try and help you through this period that's what and, he, he, he he helps him so like there's the the mm-hmm. bit that i think the, the most kind of pointing part of the of the documentary is where they talk about paul mcgrath he goes out for a few drinks with a friend and then he just books a flight to israel and and he he i think he Jack Charlton rings him or they they get contact he's like oh where are you I'm, I'm in Israel I can't make it to the qualifier or something like that and, and Jack says look you know that if you like if you don't make it like you won't play again and Paul's like yeah I know yeah. <laughs> and like he still manages to bring him into, back into the international fold after like an episode like that as well it's just yeah the management of, of Jackie Charlton towards Paul McGrath is yeah very father figure like yeah the the other games in the group they lose 2-1 to, to Mexico uh, and they draw nil nil versus Norway, uh, so they finish second in the group overall. Mm-hmm. In the round of sixteen, they face the Netherlands again. This is Dick Advocaat's Netherlands team. They lose two nil. Um, the first goal um, from I think, I think it's um, I think it's Hullet again. I can't remember. But uh, mm. the first first goal is just basically just sheer athleticism from the Dutch, and you can just see how much fitter and faster they are and. The second goal is, uh, you know, another blunder by by Bonner in in the Ireland goal. Um, but you know they've got to the round of sixteen again. They've got out the group again. Um, they start well, strong in ninety four, don't they? I think that we've, yeah. The tournaments that we've we've covered, so I guess we kind of touched on Euro eighty eight, and that was where they started off with a with a win against England. That's a really strong result. Then. They, in, in, in Italia 90, they have a 1-1 draw against England, which again is a pretty good result. And then in USA 94, they start the group strong against Italy with a 1-0 win. Yeah. They they never have an easy opening game to a tournament, do they? And they, no. they always seem to to raise their game in these opening games. And yeah, then, then it kind of it kind of goes downhill a little bit at USA 94, I felt. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think that the real story of USA 94 is, is probably... The, the Italy game and the Paul McGrath performance. Mm. Um, Not John Aldridge absolutely screaming his head off during the Mexico game on the side. No, There's a famous well, clip of him, of him like raging. At, I think it's at a ball boy or something like that in yeah. the searing heat of somewhere. Because there was a lot of, I think going into that tournament, there was a lot of worries around the Irish being actually like able to handle the the heat yeah. of whether it was New York or or sort of Florida or San Francisco and stuff like that. And yeah. I think there was a story, but um, Jack Charlton made the team train with like two jumpers and three coats on to make them sweat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of old school tactics that. he was employing to train this team. And yeah, there's there's that really famous clip of John Aldridge just losing his head in the in the midday sun. I think it is against the against the Mexicans when they lose 2-1. So let's touch on the, you know, the, the documentary itself as a, as a piece of work and everything. Um I think you know while it's it's a really entertaining watch you know looking at the old clips and um Jack's approach to the game and mm-hmm. and you know how funny and charismatic and witty he was it's also incredibly sad to see what dementia did to him yeah but it's also very heartwarming to see how much he is loved in Ireland and by the players that played for him because they would have run through brick walls for him 
Yeah, completely. There's very much like there's, there's there's definitely two sides to the documentary, isn't it? Because it is sort of a real sort of heartwarming look at his time as Ireland manager and just the relations that like he managed to heal between England and Ireland. I think he was just like mm. he became this loved figure in Ireland, which kind of helped them warm to an Englishman, which no one thought they could ever do. But then there's a like a really something I, I just found it like quite a terrifying undertone to the documentary about the whole sort of yeah. dementia element because they do show a lot of clips of of daily life of Jack Charlton and they show him footage and there's clips of his wife talking to him and he's just kind of not able to answer questions properly just kind of or he gives a lot of I don't knows and things like that and he's doesn't seem like he's able to recall the 66 World Cup final which I find Mm. that's the I think that's the bit that really hit home for me because like I can't imagine really achieving something so incredible he's obviously a member of the only England squad to have won the World Cup final and yeah cannot remember it mm. which i think ima- like it's difficult to imagine achieving something so significant and yet not being able to call doing it and having to be told that yep you i mean you were there you did that yeah. it's really quite difficult for me and it just shows what a horrific disease it is yeah there's a lot of interviews that so the the, the film is it's executively produced and you know put together by Gabriel Clark, who, if you've ever listened to ITV football commentary, you'll you'll recognise his voice, and Andy Townsend. Everyone knows Andy Townsend, um, and they've done a lot of interviews talking about what the original idea was for the documentary. So the original idea was that it was going to be talking about you know the World Cups and you know the Ireland stuff and all of that, and they would be interviewing Jack as as part of it. Um, and Andy Townsend who has had to deal with his his father um, had dementia um, and struggled with dementia and they talk about how when they first went and met up with Jack and his wife and his family and everything and almost immediately after seeing Jack Andy Townsend said to, to Gabriel Clark, we cannot interview Jack as part of this. It, it wouldn't be the right thing to do. Um, they, I suppose, it's that level of respect and love that they had for him, in that mm-hmm. they didn't want to put him on camera and say to you know say, oh, what was it like managing at Italia ninety, and him struggle yeah. to mm-hmm. remember or be able to answer the question. Yeah, because then you get the the you literally the footage of him struggling to recall things would have been extremely difficult. And there's there's certain moments of it, there's flickers of it in the film, and it's 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 really difficult to watch. And so if you extrapolate on that and you start asking him proper interview questions and putting him under the spotlight, it would have been even worse. So yeah, and it's they there are clips of Jack Charlton, you know, you know, twenty nineteen. Um, just at home living his life and you know his his grandkids are there and everything but at no point do they interview him at no point do they ask him things and i think that that way of managing that situation and doing that and, and showing the this was jack then and this is jack now was very respectfully done um it's something that we were talking about off air that you prompted me to include in in this in this section <laughs> yeah. was something where I've seen it done the other way and it made me very uncomfortable and it's um and it's it's not me digging the guys out that that did it but it just made me uncomfortable so mm-hmm. Vice used to have a YouTube series called Guitar Moves where 
they would do these interviews with different musicians talking about their their style and all of that sort of stuff so they did one with josh harm and that's really really interesting and there's one with albert hammond jr that's really good and shortly before or a few months before he passed away they did one with lemmy and it was released after lemmy passed away and it's a very 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 difficult watch because you've got um a very thin frail elderly man mm-hmm. struggling to hold a bass guitar struggling to play and even acknowledging i can't i can't play i can't i can't do this anymore but they're mm-hmm. still like persisting with this interview and oh could you play oh i don't know overkill for us and he's like no <laughs> and he's and, and it's I just found it a really difficult watch and a really the 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 comparison between that and how this was done where it's just sort of like observational rather than you know trying to put Jack on the spot and ask ask him questions whereas this this Lemmy video he's trying his best to struggle through it but can't do it. Mm. I watched it once. I don't think I could ever w- watch the the Lemmy thing again. Yeah. Whereas fi- finding Jack Charlton I could comfortably watch a thousand times over and still yeah. find it heartwarming and entertaining and interesting and 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 sad and you know it, it made me a bit emotional first time i watched it seeing you know you look at the the archive clips and you've got this charismatic witty funny intelligent guy who kn- knows the game of football inside out he knows how to motivate and entertain people an excellent um, after dinner speaker <laughs> like that really comes through at the start yeah. he's an excellent after dinner speaker and then you see him towards the end where d- dementia has taken so much from him and his wife says you know every now and then you do get flashes you do yeah. you do you know you do get bits and like you said the the clip of him he's watching bits from Italia 90 and his wife's asking him, do you remember this? And he says, no. But then he sees Paul McGrath and his face lights up and he goes, oh, yeah. that's Paul McGrath. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, it that was delightful. Yeah, he just, yeah. Oh, Paul McGrath. And the smile mm. that appears on his face is is unbelievable. That was, it was a real, like, that was a real joyous moment towards the end of the documentary. It's got so much, I think what's, what came through from it is it has got so much rewatch value. Like yeah. I, um, I, I you can rent it on on Amazon Prime and if it's like 4.49 or something or you can buy it if if you are going to watch it I would just suggest buying it because if you yeah. rent it you only get 48 hours and you will want to rewatch it so if you are going to invest some time in this I would just just buy it. just pay the full price of like 9.99 and just buy it yeah. because you will want to rewatch it again and again and again yeah I mean we only we haven't even talked about the notes I mean oh my oh, the, word yeah the, the cinematic notes. style of the documentary was brilliant as well. The way it was all pieced together and, yeah, the notes were excellent. So Jack Charlton had basically... And and uh, Gabriel Clark talks about this in one of the podcasts that he's, he's done to su- support all of this. So essentially, Jack Charlton used to keep notebooks and pieces of paper and, you know, literal backs of cigarette packets. Yeah, he would like write scraps down, of paper. One yeah, that says he, Vodafone at the top. Like, <laughs> yeah, he would write down his football philosophy, his ideas, tactics, team selections, um, you know, little notes of things that he wanted to tell the players. And basically, he kept a lot of it. And when they were doing the pre-research for the documentary... And they said, you know, said to uh, Jack's wife, do you, do you have any, you know, of his you know, old you know, documents at all? Does anything still exist? And she went, 
oh yeah we've got everything and i don't think they realized that she meant it literally because mm. she brought out boxes upon boxes of all these notes and notebooks and it's got every single team talk every single selection down to his first game to his last everything everything is documented mm. and some of the quotes that are pulled from it in in the documentary and that shows his thinking and you know lots of the the, the players talking about how he was ahead of his time with this pressing style here about he wanted this high risk high reward football he looked at the game in general the way that he looked at the game was basically that more or less everyone played it the same way and he wanted to do something different mm-hmm. um and just just tweak it and do something different with it and you you realize how much of an interesting and intelligent football mind he was yeah that re- it really comes through the whole way and i think yeah the the way that they display the notes on screen like it's kind of the it's it, it's it's all handwritten notes and you can kind of the the way that they display it, it's like some things will be scribbled out and then it will be rewritten underneath and things like like just the way that they portray just how well documented and how well kept everything that it just hoarded everything <laughs> and it yeah. was obviously a godsend for the people making the documentary because they're just bombarded with a litany of information right at the beginning like look at all this stuff that we have to work off this is going to yeah. be great and they do a fantastic job with it yeah. um yeah i i mean I, I love the documentary i thought it was excellent i thought it was brilliant i would watch it again and again and again yeah and i think just to to camp it off the, the final scene of jack in front of a record player listening to the songs that they used to sing on you know the team bus and round the pool and everything and the la- the sort of final scene is is him recognizing the song and he lifts his arms up and starts singing along <laughs> and it's just it's a really really beautiful moment to to finish yeah. it yeah an excellent way to end just a, like a one last sort of spark of joy yeah. um to just cap it all off with as a, as a sort of one final full stop um yeah it was an excellent way to end the documentary yeah well done to well, everyone involved absolutely <laughs> seriously yeah. from us yeah. here at gogo need well done to everyone involved in making fun of it finding jack Jarlan. yeah yeah and and thank you for doing it i suppose because it's certainly something that i'm glad that i took the time to watch it and yeah. certainly will be re-watching it many many times um so yeah well we hope that you enjoyed this week's episode and we hope that you if you have watched the documentary that you got uh, as much out of it as we did and if you haven't hopefully this will have uh, inspired you to to check it out um but yeah it was a uh, really the, the whole irish story was really interesting to look into and and certainly finding out a bit more about um, the great man was was brilliant for us as well uh Next up on Got Got Need, we are uh, we're doing a, a more modern story. We're going all the way back to the uh, the World Cup 2018, and we're looking at the the performance of Belgium and their golden generation. So, uh, thank you for for joining me on today's episode, Liam. Hey, not a problem. Enjoyed myself as always. Cool, and we will see you next week for Belgium and World Cup 2018.